welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 202 for October 27th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about solvent confusion, box joints and short ceilings, workbenches and T-tracks, and selecting the best wood for your projects. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. First up, we've got Circle Perfect Tools, maker of new and innovative circle guides for router tables and drill presses. Have a need for precise circular patterns? Visit circleperfecttools.com. And be sure to check out their pre-order options on their website, as well as their Kickstarter campaign. They've got some great rewards for pledges, and there's only four days to go. And they're really, really close to hitting their goal. So check them out. Check out the Kickstarter campaign. And if you like what they're about, go ahead and pledge a few bucks. You can help them uh, reach their goal. Sweet. And our next uh, sponsor is the new ArborTech Contour Random Sander. It's the ideal tool for all of your sanding jobs. It molds to the shape of your sculpted forms for effective sanding and features a powerful random sanding action. It doesn't burn or dig in at the edges, and it fits into any standard angle grinder. Check it out online at www.arbortechusa.com. Some tools stand apart the most when they're all working together. Explore a full system designed to deliver more precise results at festalusa.com and look fabulous in black and green. Mm-hmm. That goes with everything. Fabu. Really. It matches everything. Uh, <laughs> we'd also like to thank a couple of donors, James Randolph and Charles at uh, Depreciation Works. He wanted to also make mention because I, you know, he gave us a decent sized donation and I wanted to give him an opportunity to plug something. And all he wanted to say was that Cerritos College is awesome. <laughs> They're in California <laughs> and that they have a great staff and awesome woodworking classes. So thank you very much, folks. And if you want to help out too, you can at woodtalkshow.com. Look in the left hand column and you'll find a few links for very small recurring donations or one time donation. And we certainly appreciate that kind of support. So let's jump you know, into I think that's where Keanu Reeves went to school. Oh, uh, really? Cerritos College? Is that a joke or are you being serious? No, like no, I think it was actually, I think it was Los Cerritos High School or something like that. I don't know. My brother went to the same high school as Keanu Reeves. Nice. Not at the same time, just. Whoa. Stupid trivia fact. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, you, so your brother could have been. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move into what's on the bench. For me, not a whole lot. I actually have not even stepped foot in the shop for about a week. That's a first for me. Wow. So yeah, wow. it's been a while. I'm so I'm kind of focused on other things. Uh, I've mentioned before we've got some stuff going on in the house. It's my son's birthday, family's in from out of town. Uh just a lot of things taking me out of the shop, but I will oh be Oh, that's right. It's Mateo's birthday. Come it on. is. 3 years already. Can you three believe years. it? 3 years. And that crazy. So, yeah, 3 years old and uh we have a couple grandpops in from out of town and some parties to have and all that good stuff. So, I haven't done much woodworking. Uh, still focused on woodworkers fighting cancer. Still have those auctions going on, which is pretty cool. Um, so if you're interested in in participating, go to woodworkersfightingcancer.com, get all the details, watch the videos, build the toy chest, and help us raise $15,000 this year. Sweet. Yeah. Hey, uh, so you don't find yourself just staring longingly towards the shop area, do you? I don't. You know what? I The, the shop is just like... I would say three quarters of my life. So I actually do enjoy some time away and I'll eventually start to get like antsy and, and feel like I need to do something and, and I'll have that drive to get back in there. But the time that I'm away from the shop or my attention is elsewhere, I actually really embrace it and appreciate it because it's a good <laughs> mental break for me. Hey, yeah. you know, there was actually a really good post that came out today. If you guys remember Dave Knopf's, the old modern yes. shop podcast, he's put up a new blog, mm-hmm. less, less ordinary woodworker. Okay. 
Sorry, Dave. I don't remember off the top of my head. It's in my feed. I don't have to know addresses. But he wrote a post exactly about that today. Like, do you ever feel guilty or whatever for not being in the shop or, you know, oh, man, I'd, I've got a weekend and I can't get in the shop and that sucks. And then he's like, I suddenly realized I was missing out on the other stuff that I was doing because I was <laughs> yeah. feeling guilty for not being in the shop. And he's like, I just want to live my damn life. And if I'm in the shop, that's cool. If not, I'm going to have fun doing other stuff. So. Yeah, it's kind I, of appropriate. I think it's tricky when you're you're people like us, let's say folks who are online sharing what they do frequently, there's a little bit of that peer pressure in a way, whether it's even just implied or if it's a, a real thing. I do think there's a peer pressure to go out and produce so that you go on Facebook and go, hey, everybody, look what I did. Right. So, so there might be some of that pulling people into their shops, and that may not be a good thing. I mean, I really right. think you have to have everything in balance. <laughs> you know? I have several posts on my blog that represent that that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so don't force yourself to go into the shop. And we've talked about that numerous times with people who have burnout and are like, oh, what do I do? I don't feel like going in the shop. And it's, I think most of the time we come back to the answer, then don't go in there. Do something else for a while. Like take your mind off of it and your desire to, to build will come back. Like, well, you know, it, it, take up it's funny work. because uh, yeah, Sunday, I actually had that experience. I was sitting at the computer nice and early. In fact, I posted something about it's like 8 a.m. and my neighbors are about to get my lawnmower going, you know, that kind of a thing. They're going to hear the sound of that. And I'm sitting there thinking, look, I got a couple more things in the shop that I, I feel like I should do, but I really want to get out and do some lawn work and just just do some housework for once because it's been a little while. I've been putting it off. I've been hearing a little bit about not doing it. Uh, <laughs> so that's even more motivation to do it. But as I'm sitting there, I, I'm not a big one for horoscopes, but I enjoy reading them once in a while just to see you know, how close they are, if anything, if it's total coincidence. And it happened to be my horoscope on Sunday was like, you have a burning desire to do domestic chores and i'm like oh my god <laughs> i so do the burning is actually a hot iron on the back of my head for my wife but still it counts exactly so, so, so take, that's what, i was gonna say just uh, take it from the wood talk guys then uh, do less woodworking there, there you go yes and enjoy what we do when we choose to finally get in there and do it but we're gonna be doing it less often periodically too yeah it might sound odd coming from us but just uh, just do less all right, Matt. Well, aside from cleaning the gutters on your house, what else do you have going on? Well, you know, I posted a picture over the weekend. I just out of curiosity, the, it was a couple of weeks ago. We went to dinner with some some very close friends of ours. I talked about them before. We're sitting in this restaurant, and I know we've seen plenty of things like this online, uh, but it was a basically a wooden lamp. In fact, it was these uh, long accent uh, lamps that were hanging above the table that we we're at. These are just really, really big, massive ones. And of course, they're made out of veneer. These weren't turned like I know we I think we showed pictures before of a turned lampshade, which I I know in my mind, I'm looking at that going, that's never going to happen in this basement workshop. No way in the world. <laughs> but I happen to have some some big sheets of veneer that a company had sent me a while ago. And they had said something about, you know, hey, we just try out our product and just, you know, give us let us know what you think about it. And, and if you want to share with people go ahead and share it with them well it's been sitting in my basement for easily the better part of the year and i'm like i, I gotta do something with it and then suddenly those uh, veneer lamps showed up in my head and i'm like oh my gosh so it wasn't just me and our friend's baby who were the only ones that were fascinated with the light i was actually studying these things nice. and trying to figure out what they did so i made one i made it out of a cherry veneer and i thought the fun thing would be to simply play with the seam where the two pieces are going to come together why make it just a straight seam and instead i made a, a bit of a zigzag seam and while it doesn't light up the whole entire room it makes just enough of an accent light that you can easily sit underneath it 
and enjoy reading a book in a very comfortable light, in a very comfortable room. And I had a lot of fun with it. So it eventually will show up on the show and I'm probably going to make a few different versions because when my friends saw the pictures, they're immediately like, now where do I place our order? We don't see the PayPal button on here. Hmm. So it was a, it's pretty neat. I think the hardest part is going to be trying to find the right lamp that fits in it because what I ended up doing was uh, both of the ladies in my house were gone and my daughter happens to have this really cool kind of swag lamp that hangs in her room that they got from Ikea. And so I went in there, ripped the shade off, pulled that down and came down and used that as the light source. Hmm. And then when they came home, I was still down in my shop and I had to have Aiden run interference for me so that I could somehow manage to get it hooked back up in her room before anybody noticed. <laughs> Unfortunately, she did notice because unlike my son, her floor is like the epitome of like the worst dirty room ever. And I had made a path between all of her clothes <laughs> to get back in there. So I got busted. But when it's I a defense picture, mechanism. She's that way. She uh, has a little trap set and can see the trail. So very smart, yes. actually, to think about it. <laughs> she did a fantastic does anyone job. Else, does anyone else think that Vanderlust household stories remind you of an episode of Modern Family or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have a contract with, with, the, with the networks there? Yeah, you that, should definitely be a sitcom family, like the middle yeah, or something like that. You need to monetize some of this. <laughs> yes, yeah, we, we we've heard that numerous times, and I have noticed that these little uh, uh, people start like, or people start showing up here with like uh, stenography pads and taking notes and following around. <laughs> it gets really uncomfortable at times, but nice. hey, if it if it benefits the rest of the world with comedy, that's what we do naturally. <laughs> cool, <laughs> totally worth it. Yeah, so that that that's me. That's 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 what I've been doing. Now, how about you, Shannon? I see that you are finally getting out of bed, apparently. Yes. I, and applying finish all at the oh. same time, getting out of bed and applying finish. No, we, we have talked in the past about like pre-finishing and do we do it and why would we do it? And I've never been really one to do it, frankly, because a lot of times I just feel lazy and well, I may not apply finish first of all, but second, it's like, oh, I'm just going to get glued up and I'll deal with it later. But this, um, this uh, pencil post bed that I just finished for the hand tool school, it knocks down completely into its individual parts. Otherwise, there's just no way to get it through a door. So by its very nature, it's individual parts. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so easy to finish. Mm -hmm. Everything's its, its own piece. And for that matter, I don't have to even like tape off joints because the headboard is dry fit, just like a like a floating panel would be in a framing panel door. And the bed bolts actually hold everything tight. So I'm like, this is great. There's no glue anywhere on this thing. I can just slop the, you know, I'm just using a, a, a wipe on finish. I can just slop it on. No big deal. Wipe it off. And it's just awesome. It just makes finishing so much easier. Nice. It does. Yeah. Too bad. You just can't do that on every single project. No, <laughs> just, just make everything knock down, you know, that's it. Screws from here on out. Yeah, I think uh, that's what they do at Ikea. So you've now become Ikea. There's a yes. new job opportunity for you now. <laughs> I just need to come up with a cool name. <laughs> really long. Something I won't be able to pronounce. I yeah. Rogers. <laughs> there you go. All right. Let's, uh, let's move into what's new. Only have one link to share with you today. Jim sent this in. He says, in case you didn't uh, see this or it didn't show up on your radar yet, uh, talk about popping the grain. This is on ancientwood.com and it is the Kahiko table. Oh, and yes. the, it's beautiful, right? It's got a, the carbon fiber base, amazing wood, book matched on the top, big slabs, and just amazing figure. They've got really good close-up shots of it. Um, it's absolutely stunning. Very beautiful. But I would have to say the most amazing thing about this table is the price. <laughs> yes. Right? It's it's priced at $100,000. There's one in stock, and surprisingly, it is still available. 
<laughs> when you said popping the green, I think he actually means popping your eyeball. It's more like <laughs> yeah, it when boing. you see that price tag. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, and then, you know, hey, if you can get $100,000 for a table, then uh, that's all the power to you. But I think I'll just enjoy the pictures, and hopefully some rich person will come along and buy this thing, and uh, it'll all be justified. But until then, we can enjoy the photos. <laughs> I, I just love the fact that in the description, they say it's one of the most unique, which, first of all, that really bothers me, because you can't modify unique people. It's either unique or it's not. Come on. It's not more unique or most unique or most uniquer. But anyway, you know most what? unique and expensive table. So they actually just come right out and say, yeah, this is the most expensive thing ever created. But they don't say why. It's not like, well, and it is expensive because of carbon fiber and all this. No, it's just it's just the most expensive. Deal with it. Yeah, but when you got that much money for a table, do you care why? It's like, nah, just take your <laughs> word for it. It's fine. It's fine. Let me, how much? How many zeros? Oh, okay. Five of those? All right, no problem. That's it. Oh my gosh! No, they get a hand cramp. You know, they could have said that that somebody spat on the wood and it's still there. Somebody famous. I don't know. It looks like there's a sort of a press release or something attached to it that might give a little bit more information than what they do on this uh, little summary product description. Uh, it's made from Kari, that like fifty thousand year old stuff. That's it. That's what they're saying, and it has Mega Curl. <laughs> There's a very good chance a brontosaurus once took a poop on it. (laughs) There you go. So either way, very cool looking table, neat design. If anything, um, go look at the the way that the base is designed. Might give you some neat ideas for some cool uh, furniture in the future. Yeah, I I did love the way that that base looked. It it, it absolutely made – it played with that figure just nicely. And I'm horrible at talking about the way things look and stuff like that. You know, usually I try to describe something. People usually go, I don't have a clue what you just said. What? <laughs> so you'd be a terrible like Food Network show host where as they're uh, part of their job as they're cooking is to describe the food and give it like uh, texture and, and like light up people's imaginations for what it tastes like. Something that's hard to describe. You'd, yeah. You'd be terrible at that. Yeah, I'm like, and it, it's, it sizzles, and it's really good, and it's it's probably going to be hot in your mouth. <laughs> hot in your mouth. <laughs> nice. All right, let's move on to our poll of the week. Our good buddy Tom Ivino writes these for us at tomsworkbench.com. And last week I mentioned the poll being edge jointing, right? So how do you edge joint boards? There's quite a few options, but the, it, the few at the end – there's quite a few of them, and they all are very, very low percentages. So let me just give you the top three. Uh, 56%, and we had over 1,300 people respond to this. 56% said they use a power jointer, which is interesting. I was curious. I mean, that kind of gives you a quick representation of how many people are doing milling by hand. Uh, so 56 say that sounds just about right to me. <laughs> Yeah, well, 56%. We're a very small bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, but that's the thing. I'm a, well, I guess tables are, I'm, I'm excluding the other power tools in my brain. So I guess you'd have to add all these together. So 56% with a joiner, 19% actually use the table saw. And that was the second highest. Uh, 12% use hand planes. And then there were a couple other, I guess, more exotic <laughs> methods of using various edge jointing tools. He's a very angry beaver that I pulled out of his dam. <laughs> <laughs> he just makes very straight cuts with his teeth. Uh, so yeah, go check out the, the rest of the responses for that one. And also this week's poll, if you want to go answer it, is uh, about holiday-themed projects. Uh, not just like Christmas and Thanksgiving, but also Halloween uh, is, is coming up actually this Friday, right? So do you ever build anything holiday themed to just kind of make things more festive and exciting or make a very unique thing that you wouldn't find in a store for a particular holiday? If you do that, go ahead and answer that poll. Let us know if you do. And that will be something we'll talk about next week. 
I guess we just have to ask the retailers that sell those like uh, ghost and witch bowls, you know, the, the ones that have the template and then you route that out. It's, and you're um, like, oh. Ameri- uh, Eagle America sells those. Yeah, I, I, made, I made one of the ghosts in the past. That was a lot of fun. I think the one that is probably looks the most boring, but it's probably really easy for uh, beginners is the candy corn one. Oh, yeah. It's just a triangle. That's right. Yeah, the, the ghost actually, that is still every year we pull it out and something about the the way it was made, the wood and everything is just really, really looks perfect. It looks exactly like it, it did on day one. We put candy in it every year, um, but it holds up really well. Surprisingly. It would have been really cool as if the grain would have had like two little tiny knot holes, like where the eyes are. <laughs> that would have been that cool. Been. Shannon, since you're selling wood through your website, can you make that happen for Mark? Please. I'm going to specifically sell ghost bowl wood packs. Yeah, double double tandem knot perfectly placed for eyeballs. And then like, like one big one, that'd be like the mouth like, ooh. Scary. All right, let's move into our voicemail. We have one here from Kyle. He's got some burning cuts with his new saw. Ooh. First of all, I just want to say thank you guys for everything you do. This is Kyle from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Quick question. I recently bought a used table saw, the first table saw I've ever owned. And I noticed there's quite a bit of smoke when I make a rift cut. I don't know if it's the blade. I don't know if I said it and doing wrong. Hopefully you can help. Thank you. All right. Apologize for the audio quality there. It was a little rough, but basically he's getting burns on a table saw, has a new to him table saw that he's using, and he's experiencing some burns when he's making rip cuts. Um, and I'll just tackle this real quick, guys. It's, um, you know, pretty straightforward. You get a new saw, you got to do a calibration on it, right? So you can't really start to roll things out until you know that your saw is set up properly. So calibrate it, make sure that fence is in alignment with the blade. And if you still get burning cuts after everything is aligned and you've addressed the blade, maybe the blade is dull and needs to be sharpened or you need to replace it. Um, that's also one thing you want to do. Uh, but look at the fence placement. Sometimes people like to tilt the fence out toward the back just a little bit, just a thousandth or two, just to give it a little bit of relief. And that can help to prevent burning as you push it all the way through the cut. But basically calibration first, check the blade second, and then look at the fence adjustment to like intentionally put it out of perfect parallel, <laughs> but you got to do it the right way at the back. Uh, and that should give you burn free cuts for the most part. Uh, anything nice. I missed there, guys? No, that sounds about right. Sweet. All right, let's move into our email. Now, we've got the email each, like usual, and because we're a little light on the rest of the stuff, we've got a, a question we're all going to answer together at the end. Uh, but I'll start here with Brian's question. He says, I was standing in the solvent aisle at my big box store and was overwhelmed with all the choices. I've tried to read up on them as much as I can, but all the chemistry talk makes my brain hurt. Looking on the shelves, I have mineral spirits, denatured alcohol, acetone, and naphtha, can you point me to a resource that lists what the best product to use for certain applications? I also like to know when I should not use a certain solvent due to adverse reactions. For example, I was cleaning some adhesive off of plastic with acetone and it started to dissolve the plastic. Oh. I know, <laughs> Yeah, right? That would suck. I know that mineral spirits is paint thinner and can be used in combination with varnish and boiled linseed oil to make a wiping varnish. I know that denatured alcohol is used to dissolve shellac and I use it to clean my brush when I use bin other than that, uh, I'm lost. So I'm just going to give some basic guidelines. I didn't find a specific resource to point him to. Admittedly, I didn't really search very hard. Of course, any finishing book, generally speaking, will probably have a chart listing the solvents and the the dilutions, like the, would you call it a diluent 
uh, all the things that you can use to create dilutions and it's kind of assigns them based on a type of finish and what they're meant for. So most like the Jewett Flexner type books, those will be listed in there. You could find that information there, but I'm sure there's, there's gotta be something. Someone put a chart together online somewhere. I just didn't find it. Uh, but what I wanted to do was tell you basically what I stock up on. There are only three things that I really keep in my shop at all times. And it's based on diluting finishes and thinning finishes. So that's mineral spirits and that's for anything oil-based denatured alcohol. And of course that's for shellac great for cleaning as well. And then lacquer thinner and lacquer thinner of course is for lacquer. And those are the three things that I focus on now where it gets confusing is you could look at mineral spirits and other things that you could thin oil-based finishes with. And there's a lot of others. In fact, you've got like three more on the shelf that you might be able to use for instance, paint thinner and naphtha. Those are two examples that will also thin finishes, but I don't use paint thinner because it stinks like poo poo. And the naphtha is a little bit more expensive, even though it's generally like a, a higher, you would consider it to be a higher quality or a higher purity. It's more highly refined or something. Yes, but it really does the same thing. So you don't, I don't really stock those two at all. So mineral spirits is the only thing I stock uh, unless it's a special situation that I need something unique. So if you have mineral spirits, denatured alcohol, and lacquer thinner, you could go your entire woodworking career and that's all you're going to need. A lot of the cleaning jobs can be done with that denatured alcohol. Um, if you have acetone, acetone can be nice for certain things, but as you found out, it is really nasty stuff. So plastics, you have to be very careful with. Any kind of gloves you use, it'll probably eat them right up unless it's a, a special glove that resists it. Um, so acetone is nice to have, but you don't necessarily need it in the shop. So I think pair down to basics and don't be, you know, don't be sort of overwhelmed by everything that's there. You don't need all that's there. Just focus on the big three for diluting finishes and a little bit of cleaning here and there. And I think you'll be fine. Um, are there any other sort of solvents that you guys use routinely that you think should be stocked in the shelf on the shelf besides those three? No, I mean, that's really the main ones I go to. In fact, I look at some of the other ones and I go, I probably should know what you do. <laughs> but I don't have time to do research. I should look that up. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you guys never fail me. So let's go ahead and we'll go with you and you, I will save for someday when I decide to be exotic. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of things you can do with the other chemicals. I just don't think they're, they're absolutely necessary and people have their preferences. You might talk to someone says, Oh, you, you got to use acetone for this thing. Or I only use naphtha to do this special situations. So generally speaking, those three will get you pretty darn far in woodworking. Yeah, yep. definitely. Sweet. Well, let's move out of this question that comes from John. And John says, I'm trying to build the mother and father of all spice racks. So this could be a messy family situation, apparently. <laughs> it says, my design is 1,740 millimeters. And for those of you who are metrically, <sighs> metrically challenged. Give me which, a fraction, man. Come on. I was, I was going to say that's pretty much anybody within the <laughs> United States. Uh, that works out to about 68 and a half inches. Uh, so he's the, uh, his design is about 68 and a half inches tall. And I now realize that I'm going to struggle to put my intended box joints in the UK. We call them finger joints on the ends. That's why he's using metric. He says, that's because I have a low ceiling in my workshop and the clearance above the router table is about half what it needs to be for the long pieces to pass over it. This must be a problem that other people have solved. So the question is, how? How do I how I could try and chop the box joints or dovetails by hand, I suppose, or maybe use some kind of horizontal routing jig as a last resort. I guess I could chop the design in half and make two smaller racks. OK, John, so right away. Yes, you probably should do that. Since you're having the mother and father of <laughs> all spice racks, make it a mother and father of all spice racks. And that way you have two of them and it will take care of your issue. 
Now, if that's not really what you want to do, you really do want to have this big family size spice rack here. Uh, my next suggestion is really simple. Just take your router table out into the uh, a larger room with higher clearance, maybe even outside and do it. Now, if your router table is anything like the monster one that I have and you can't get your neighbor to come over and help you take it out, then the next thing I am thinking of is maybe going that horizontal routing action. So a couple of possibilities here. One, you could still maybe use the router table. It's just that you would now have the pieces laying flat and then uh, using a straight cutting router bit, probably like the one you would normally use if you were going to do it, say, in the, in the traditional way that you were planning on doing the, with a vertical up and down. Just simply adjust the fence as needed over to a, a, adjust for the fingers and then you could just simply route it that way, just go, you know, going into uh, the router bit horizontally. Another option Rather than doing the horizontal routing, if that's really not what you want to do, maybe go with a jigsaw and you could uh, clean out the the fingers. This might even give you an opportunity where you could stack the pieces so that they're staggered, much like you probably would have with a lot of the uh, the box joint or, in your case, the finger joint jigs where you kind of stagger one over so that you get them to line up just the right way. Uh, I think a, a jigsaw would probably help you out quite a bit with that. The only problem with it is you probably may need to come back in and clean up those walls with, say, a chisel. Uh, so that's definitely something to think about. And again, when I think about the chisel work, also if you were to do the routing horizontally, obviously router bits, I haven't found one yet that leaves a square cut in the corners. So you still would have to come in and maybe touch it up with a chisel. So depending on how wide those fingers are going to be, uh, that could be really interesting. You probably, hopefully, maybe you can get an eighth-inch chisel. I don't know what that works to in metrics. Very small, apparently. <laughs> uh, but that's that's a couple of things I'm thinking about. If anybody else has any ideas, I would definitely love to hear it. But this is one of those. We've run into this situation before. I know we've been asked previously about maybe cutting dovetails on really long boards and short of getting down and maybe laying on your back and and cutting them on the on the workbench as they're laying flat with you uh there's not really too many options so yeah yeah. i mean if you're gonna stick with the power tool route it is a little difficult but i do think that and and mark you have a lot more experience of this than i do but it possibly creating some kind of template yeah and and first of all if you were going to do anything at the router table i would probably remove as much of the waste as i could at the bandsaw Um, because you could you could get a lot of that out you could actually almost get it square if your bandsaw is really well tuned you could get in those inside corners and then create some kind of template where either you're using a um what are those things called flush trim bit or pattern bit Mm -hmm. okay or using like the collar um template guide type situation because if he's making well if it's only one rack we're talking about four corners here right um so i don't know it just seems like that would be if you were going to do that horizontal thing, Matt, whereas I understand correctly, you're pushing into the bits. You'd have to have some sort of depth stop to make yep. sure it stops at the baseline. Um, having some kind of template to guide it, I think would be, I would feel a lot safer about yeah. that. Well, you know, and the one thing that I keep thinking about with, if you were to do the horizontal uh, routing, I, I know that there are taller bits out there. So again, we don't know how thick the material that John's working with. So let's assume that it's like maybe half inch, three quarter or something like that. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I keep seeing over and over is trying to make sure that those fingers match up. You know, like right. with, with a lot of the jigs, like I said, you have to kind of stagger it. That to me would be the absolute nightmare because I know for myself – Unless I do have them staggered on there or I have some sort of a template like what you're talking about, 
there's going to be that mistake where it's not going to be over just enough. So then when I do mate the two, the two joints, the two pieces for the joint, one's going to ine- inevitably be off. And then suddenly I'm like redoing the whole d- dimensions. Right. Yeah, it wouldn't be too hard with a, with a template. My concern would be if they're, you know, when I think finger joints, I mean, I call that type of joint finger joint and box joint right. sort of interchangeably. But when I think of finger joints, I tend to think of thinner ones and yeah, really tiny fingers. Yeah. This may yes. be my imagination. If it's thicker and wider, then that's when I start to want to call them box joints. Is that, I don't know if does everybody do that? Or am I even wrong with that? I don't know. I, I, no, use them I think they're all small. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all pretty small. Yeah. I mean, cause you can make really small ones too. But anyway, point is the way he's describing it, something like a, a spice rack makes me think he's going to have pretty small fingers there. Maybe use yeah. a quarter inch bit and that may be the width of the fingers. In that case, that's going to make building your own little template guide for that a little bit tricky. I mean, it's not that it can't right. be done. It's just going to be tricky. Uh, so if, if there were more space between each finger, then designing your own little, that, cause that's what I did on the, uh, green and green blanket chest. Um, but we were talking very, very big finger joints, very big box joints and, uh, you know, a few inches long each one. So, or wide, I guess you would say. So that was easy to do. But in this case, that, that seems a little tricky, man. I, I would probably say like you, you mentioned the bandsaw seems like a great way. You can get good repetitive cuts to establish the start and stop of each cut at the bandsaw and use that, your, your cut line, basically almost like you're doing dovetails at the bandsaw. Um, right. You know, one more option. I was just thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may laugh, but maybe this is a possibility. Uh, take the pieces and rip them into narrow strips that'd be equal to the fingers and then now re-glue them, just have them staggered so one's you know protruding one way or the other. And then, you know, make your own finger joints that way. Maybe it'll add a le- level of design. That's so Cutting stupid. Board spice rack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. You no, know, that would I, be interesting. I hate, I mean, he did bring it up. I hate for him to just immediately overlook the hand method because, I mean, if you are just making one box, it's four Four corners, joints, yeah. You right. know, and if you clamp two of the boards together and gang cut them, you know, you could cut, say, the two longer boards if it's a rectangle. You could clamp those together, cut both ends of it, and then essentially you lay it in and you transfer the joint just like you would a dovetail. So you've got that exact fit and then you cut those out. I mean, all told, you're you're talking not very much hand sawing. Now, if you're totally, oh my God, that scares the hell out of me, I can understand that. But if you were doing, say, the bandsaw, you probably would still need to come back with a chisel to cut along the baseline. So there's some hand work in there. I, I mean, again, if it were 20 different box joints, I would see why I would want to do something like this, but, and maybe I, I don't know his design, but just four corners, <laughs> he's going to spend more time making a jig, I think, right. than he yeah. would to actually saw it out. I think yeah. he should just dig a hole. I yeah. think he should just go with rabbits. Just do a couple of rabbits at each <laughs> end, call it good. Honestly, I think the best solution is a little bit of a redesign. If he doesn't want to go the hand tool route and he just wants to use power tools, uh, re re-engineer the design so that it's done in, in two pieces. And I think you'll be fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And on top yeah. of it, John, um, how many people really need that big of a spice rack? I mean, come on, buddy. How many spices, how many spices? can they possibly have? Exactly. Jeez. <laughs> Although in the in the Vandalist household, <laughs> apparently we have like uh, three things of chili powder. Um, Multiples, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we never run out of chili powder and cinnamon in the in the Vandalist household. <laughs> nice. All right, Shannon. All right. This comes from Nick. He says, I'm building a split top Rubo cross Nicholson workbench and I'm exploring work holding options. A T-track like those found on machines like router tables or drop saws. I don't know what a drop saw is. Is that like a compound miter saw? It sounds scary. 
drop saw. I've dropped a saw once and it didn't work after that. Anyway, Kyle did. Yeah. Um, miter tracks or table saws seem like a good option. Are T-track clamps compatible with workbench specific activities? I think a T-track along the length of the bench would be a more versatile, uh, be more versatile than hold fast, both for work holding and jig securing. What kind of jigs does this open possibilities for? And I grabbed this question because um, when I went down and spoke at the Shenandoah Woodturners Guild, uh, what was that, August, I think, I was taking a tour of Jeff Fleischer's shop where the the um, meeting was held. And he has a an outfeed table on his table saw that has several of those inlaid T-tracks, like the blue anodized metal ones that you mm-hmm. can buy at Rockler or whatever. And they were inlaid um, perpendicular to the direction of the – you know, the, as you rip. And I, first thing I was thinking, well, you know, cause people will inlay those so that the miter gauge has space to go into the, into the, uh, outfeed table. His were going the opposite direction and it just looks so weird to me. And he pulled out one of those Craig, um, bench clamp things that ride in the, the ride in, you know, the, what are those things? The squeeze clamp things that come with like your Craig pocket jig set. Sure. But this one actually has a T nut on the bottom that rides in the track and he clamps down onto the surface and he has uses it to secure work in all kinds of places because it doubles as a, a router table at the same time. And I started thinking that would be a really cool thing to put on a workbench, you know? So instead of like that row of dog holes, you could just run a T track and any one of those clamping systems, there's a whole bunch of different ones out there that have T nuts on the bottom could ride in that and you could clamp anywhere along your bench. You could also fit your jigs, you could fit, heck, you could fit like, you know, a bench hook with a, a T-nut on the bottom and it could slide and secure it in place. I know when I pull my um, my shooting board up onto the bench, I usually clamp it down so that it stays nice and stable. Heck, you could run a T-nut through the bottom of it, slide it onto the bench, lock it in place, and you'd have this kind of modular system. So it's kind of like Festool meets the workbench, frankly. So I think it's a great idea. I think it's cool. Do it. Um, I've got a couple other recommendations to go with that. There's a few other things that I've used as surface clamps in the past. Uh, This one doesn't rely on a T-track, but it works really well, and it adapts to just basically a hole in the workbench. And that's from Lee Jigs, the guys who make the the really sweet dovetail jig. Um, Mm -hmm. They have surface clamps that are like cam activated. So those are really cool. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for that one. Veritas has a really nice surface clamp that goes into a three-quarter inch hole. And then also, uh, don't forget to check out woodpeckers. Go into their, basically, it's like a jig building area where they have tracks and uh, T-track accessories. They have so many different little work-holding doodads and widgets and things that you can use with T-tracks that would make that a really, really versatile system to have just built into a workbench. I mean, the the cool thing about it, it makes me like, hmm, why don't I have something like this? Like, (laughs) (laughs) If it's surface mounted, as long as you don't drill or cut into it, it's not going to get in the way when you're not using it. So like, it it just seems like a really good versatile thing to have installed in any workbench. Yeah. I actually had one of those Craig clamps and it came with a little plate that you inlay into the surface. Mm -hmm. It's a little keyhole looking plate. I had that before I built my Rubo. That was like my workbench. I had like a laminate countertop and it was my single, my single little clamp that I used to clamp the board down and like plane away from it. Worked great. They're, they're really nice things to have around. I wonder how much force those things can take, like a T-Track, just in general. I know when I'm when I'm using something like a hold fast at the workbench, I really slam that thing down, and I, I like to have a lot of pressure. I just wonder 
durability wise if there could be an issue with just because basically you put it into a groove and then you've got a couple of screw holes along the length you drive the screws and it's connected so i wonder how well that would hold up to the kind of pressure that you might want to use at a workbench yeah Mm. i don't i'm not saying it's an issue i'm just kind of raising the question so if anybody has experience with this uh good or bad get back to us give us some kickback on that so we could share that with uh who was it now i know what's going to happen tonight in the wood shop (laughs) yeah i i say nick go ahead and do it and if it's a problem blame mark yeah please do (laughs) please do send all emails to my my email address is matt at matt's basement (laughs) workshop Uh, that sounds awful familiar wait a minute (laughs) all right so we've got one more question here for you i thought this would be a good one that we can all just kind of throw in our two cents bob wants to know about wood selection he says i've looked at a lot of other people's projects lately and notice how much better that they they look than mine i could see the difference that the right wood and grain pattern can make Uh, okay sure they may have more talent joinery ability artistic ability mechanical aptitude finishing experience sense of design than i do but the wood is what really stands out How do you guys select wood for your projects? All right, so this is kind of a fundamental question, but I feel like it's not just the, how do you go to the lumber store and pick wood? I think this is more like how much of that grain direction and grain look do you let influence your purchasing decisions? That's kind of how I see this question. So, you know, I'm curious with you guys, how much time do you spend at a wood pile, when you've got a project in mind, let's say you're building a simple table and you know that the the top is going to be seen a lot, do you spend extra time trying to pick out the perfect boards right then and there, or do you just kind of pick up the pile and hope to make the, the best of it once you get back to your shop? Matt, go first. Uh, what you just said there, that last part, I really kind of just throw caution to the wind and whatever shows up, I will find something in there and make it work. I have tried unbelievably to do the route, go the route of looking through the pieces and finding something that just like, oh my gosh, you got it. Look at this green. This this pattern here is just absolutely gorgeous. I can't do it. I absolutely cannot do it. In fact, usually in those situations where I try to force it and I have tried to force it before, I end up getting home and I end up using another piece that I'm like, that will just work as a support piece underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that that's the one that catches my eye. And so far, uh, the, everybody that has received the pieces that I've worked with where I've tried to do these things, they're totally satisfied with it. They love it. They see the, you know, the beauty in it and stuff. So for myself, it really is just a matter of I'll make work what, you know, what shows up. Okay. So Shannon, I know you work at Finkelstein, Donner and Hub. And so you have permanent access. When did I become a lawyer? I don't know. You, you have constant access to this stuff. So you could probably take your time and uh, yeah. really look for the good stuff. But Well, and, and frankly, that plays a lot into it. I have built furniture like designed around a board. Um, and that's a little bit different situation where you go and you see this incredible board and go, oh, I'm going to use that for something someday. Mm-hmm. And then like you actually design with the board already in hand. Uh, I built a drop leaf table last year that was designed entirely around a piece of 12 quarter, 24 inch wide walnut with this cool crack down the middle of it. And everything in that design came out of that, that board that I already had. So there's, there's that. Um, I tend to impulse buy when I go places, I'll see this incredible board and go, I don't really need it, but you know, and you pick it up and you stick it on the rack and you eventually build something for it. So there is, there is that, when, like before I started working in the lumber yard, I, I tried kind of like what Matt was saying, but I don't know about you guys, but you always, I always felt the pressure to like get in and get out and don't like 
spend forever there. There's yeah. guys looking at me. I didn't want to make a mess. I didn't want to be that guy <laughs> pawing through all the racks. And a lot of times it's just so overwhelming because there's so many boards yep. to choose from. So I, I would pay a little attention and kind of deal with what I had, but I paid a lot of attention once I got home, you know, looking at the board you have and coming up with some cohesion. So it's not really at the lumber yard I'm doing and it's more of, well, here's what I have. Now let's make lemonade from from my lemons or whatever whatever metaphor you want to use there now um i'm kind of gone back to the other thing where i tend to design around the boards i have because i'm surrounded by lumber all day and i tend to run across uh, i'm about to start a blanket chest and i'm building it out of um single piece sides because i found this piece of 16 inch wide curly cherry nice and it was like the minute i saw that i was like okay i'm gonna go out and buy that and um, I'm going to use that for the blanket chest. And I changed all of my dimensions to match that particular board. Nice. <laughs> you know, because it was originally, I think the, the, I was using a, a plan that popular woodworking put out in SketchUp a while ago. And the board was going to be like a half an inch too narrow. Well, I'm not going to go and try to find a 17 inch wide piece of cherry. I've never seen it. So now that I have the flexibility and, you know, the 40 to 50 hours a week that I'm at the lumber yard, I can be a lot pickier. Um, however, what I've found is it's not so much about the special board. It's about the rest of the boards. So I do put a lot of thought into getting really kind of, for lack of a better term, vanilla, real straight grain stuff mm-hmm. and really focusing on contrast. So I've got, I know that I'm going to have a panel in that door. So I'll get something cool for the the door or I won't even worry about that. I'll get that later. And I focus on getting really nice straight grain stuff for the rails and styles. It's the contrast, I think, and the continuity of your frame pieces all being straight grain. So they kind of blend into the background and the panel pops and stands out. And the panel all by itself might just be a regular center cut, you know, cathedral grain, nothing special. But when you put it against the perfectly straight grain frame in the door, it really looks awesome. Yeah. Um, and maybe maybe you go to the trouble to center the cathedral instead of having it slightly offset, or you offset it and then you offset the door next to it like the same amount the other way or something like that. Sure. It so it does. It's not just about figure in that incredible you know unique looking board. It's about composing across the entire piece of furniture. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really part of the fun of the process. I try my yeah. best when I'm at the lumber yard. I do try my best to get stuff and say, yeah, you know, that'd be perfect for this part and that'd be perfect for this part. But everything kind of changes. Like Matt was saying, once you get back to your shop and you're looking at the whole thing at, as a whole and you start getting chalk and, and wipe, you know, writing what part's going to be what, uh, the fun part of it is trying to, it's like a puzzle and there's usually a no perfect answer, but there's usually better answers and then solutions that aren't as good. So you rule out the ones that aren't as good, try to get more of the ones that are good, and try to make the, the whole thing harmonious from top to bottom. And that's that's a fun part of the challenge. Uh, what I find interesting about this is I can distinctly remember this feeling like a second phase of my woodworking when I started early on. I remember I got to a certain point, I had built, I don't know, maybe a dozen projects. And I started looking around at what made other people's projects different than mine. What made this one thing a very simple piece that I'm looking at, maybe in a magazine, what makes this thing better than mine? And then you start to notice, oh my gosh, it's something as simple as the grain. 
Uh, the, mm-hmm. the wood itself was just used in a way that makes this piece look better. And once you realize that, it's kind of that light bulb turning on in your head and you realize how much better your projects could have been if you had paid attention to, to, to grain direction. But initially, that's a little too much to handle. You just want the thing to go together and not fall apart in a year. You <laughs> right. know, it's, I remember well, thinking if you think that. about it, if you think about it, the magazines and plan books and things like that don't encourage that. Think about any parts list or cut list you've ever seen. We treat solid solid wood like plywood. Like it's plywood, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> this part comes out of this and they're all nested together on that board. And, you know, it, and usually it's, okay, part A and, and B, C, and D just sequentially. And it, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it is it is funny when you start to realize it and you go, wait a minute, I got my hands full here just trying to get a mortise and tenon joint together <laughs> and you want me to worry about grain. But it really does become a sort of artistic element. It's a way of painting, you know, with Mother mother Nature's things that she gives you, but you have to make do with what you've got. And yeah, there's times I'll go back to the store because nothing I, I have will work for this one special thing. So I'll, I'll then go back and try to find it. But most of the time you can make it work. You just figure it out. And even if it isn't perfect. Like let's say you're doing the door frame, like you're talking about Shannon and you, you can't find four perfect pieces, but you found three and there's only one that doesn't fit. Well, that's still going to be better than if you had done nothing at all. You know, you'll still stack the cards in your favor for a better looking project. I think. Yeah. Right. Cool. All right. Oh, it's getting hot in here. Oh, stupid yep. winter in it Arizona. It is Arizona. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's all that knowledge you're dropping. It's dropping up the I'm place. dropping knowledge nuggets. You know, if I can add one little thing to that. Okay. Be con- be conservative with the species that you use. That's the, because just going with what Mark said about that phase in woodworking, I remember when I first discovered like exotics and I, I blame David Marks for this, no. you know, ooh, bubinga, ooh, zebra wood, ooh, yellow heart, you know, well, look what new wood he's got this week. So you'd go and you go to a lumber yard and I was always, I've always been fortunate. There've been good lumber yards nearby. So you buy the worst I think is purple heart. How many guys I just love purple heart because it's purple. Well, it turns brown after it oxidizes, but it's just, it's hard to find a really, for lack of a better term, fine piece of furniture that's built with like six different wood species and has a lot of <laughs> purple and bright yellow in it. Um, and that, that, you see that a lot because we just get overwhelmed by the total palette of, of wood out there. Yeah. Be conservative, use one or two species and be really sparing. You've got a primary wood and a secondary wood. And I think that's another thing. If you look at these projects that are, are, are really cool, it's rare that you're going to find more than a two species of wood unless you're, you know, adding like inlay or stringing or something like that. It's usually a very small number. Yeah. Less is more. Yeah, definitely less is more. And you're right. I think the if you use too many species, it almost makes the piece, I don't know, gives it kind of an expiration date in, in how good it looks. Like after yeah. a couple of years, you'll kind of get tired of looking at it. Well, everything's competing for attention. Yeah, it's rough. Know? Rough on the eyes. Cool. All right. That sounds good. Uh, you know what? This actually reminds me, um, not, not to make a sales pitch for the Guild, but one of the things that I really enjoy about the Guild something I can't do on the free site because I'll just deal with nasty comments forever is I can spend an entire episode on picking my lumber and grain selection. And I do for every guild project, we actually have a full video showing my thought process because every project and every batch of wood brings new challenges. So let's just go through it. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's why I want this part to come from this board. And I do a whole video on it every single time. So it actually is a really good exercise and something that I don't think, you know, when you're ready to get to that, stage of your woodworking. It's definitely something you don't want to overlook. Uh, It could be important. 
Okay, so if you want to support the show, you can do that. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, look on the left-hand side, and you'll see those donation links. Uh, also, you can get a Wood Talk t-shirt at the Wood Whisperer store. That's twwstore.com. And you can leave us an iTunes review. Just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and if you can, give us that five-star rating that we appreciate, like Sticks in the Mud Woodshop did. He says, I have to listen to Wood Talk when I'm doing something I don't have to concentrate on, such as sanding or painting. Recently, I decided to take the plunge into high-quality chisels, but first wanted to review what the guys had said in an earlier podcast about chisel choices. The archives make it easy. Just pull up the list, Control-F for Find, type in Chisel, and press Enter. I found about 10 previous shows with chisel discussions, and before my living room was all finished... All contrary information. <laughs> they right, all exactly. conflicted. <laughs> and that one time we had Wilbur on, and then everybody got really confused. Um, he says, before my living room was finished painting, I'd listen to everything they knew about chisels, metal choices, and sharpening. Japanese chisels, here I come. Thanks for the great education, Shannon, Matt, and Mark. Well, thank you for that. Sticks in the mud wood shop. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank really you. good stuff. And Makes Matt, us sound like Norse stuff. That's scary. Guys talk at the same time. I can't hear a damn thing. No, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> I am so confused. All right, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, a question or a topic suggestion that could potentially make us sound like we really know what we're talking about? That would be awesome. Send those send those to me first and let the other guys know <laughs> once they can have. But anyways, you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And if you're not aware of this yet, the three of us, we happen to have our own websites. Uh, you can find us over at, well, not all of us. You can find Mark over at thewoodwhisperer.com, Shannon over at renaissancewoodworker.com, and me, Matt, over at mattsbasementworkshop.com. And don't forget, we actually have a forum over at woodtalkonline.com. So you can just ask a whole bunch of questions where there's a good chance uh, only Mark will be there. Possibly. Depends on the day. But yeah, it's it does. a good, good place to hang out. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, the Wood Talk guys always say, do less woodworking. That's right. Yeah. Domestic chores. <laughs> Clean your gutters, people. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.